Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. Welcome to a very special episode of Soul Talk, the Soul Talk podcast. It's great to have you all back. I have been really looking forward to today's interview. Someone I have, uh, I'm going to introduce you to someone you may already know of, but someone I have long respected for many years uh, on my spiritual path. I've heard of him uh, I read his book, The Inner Revolution. I've listened to some of his talks. So it's a real joy to uh, have him on Soul Talk today and we get to explore the meaning of life and other deep topics. <laughs> he is uh, someone who's who's been a popularizer of Buddhist teachings. Uh, check this, folks. He was the first West, Westerner, Tibetan Buddhist monk ordained by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. He's a charismatic speaker, author of many books on, on Tibet, Buddhism, art, politics, and culture. Um, he was named by New York Times as the leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, Time Magazine chose him as one of the 25 most influential Americans in 1997. Welcome to the conversation, Robert Thurman. Tenzin, Thank you, Bob Thurman. Welcome. Thank you, so, so, nice. great to, so great to have you here, man. Not to let all that go to my head. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, I have so many things I want to dive into about life yeah. and the meaning of this whole existence and incarnation. But just like, but just to set a bit, of a bit of a context for those that may be new to you and your work, I, I'm always curious as to like what inspired people's spiritual journey and seeking, whether it was something from childhood, whether it was their parents, whether it was a specific event, like what inspired your path? I know you were quite young uh, when you went to meet the Dalai Lama for the first time. So what was the inspiration for the entire search? Well, I don't know. I think uh, it was from my previous life, I think. Mm. that um, I was, um, I always felt like I was a stranger in a strange land, to borrow Robert Heinlein's sci-fi book title. Yes. And when I was a kid, and uh, I had the memory of having had a difficult childhood in an emotional sort of theatrical family. Mm. And um, although my wife pointed out to me when we got together long ago, and she found all kind of old snapshots, that in all the pictures of the family as a whole, I'm the only one who's grinning. <laughs> Everybody else looks uptight, so I must have been irritating them with my big mouth. And in fact, but anyway, I'm the one who felt like I was in a stranger in a strange land, and they were they all get so emotional about things and have tantrums and things like that. My mother was an actress, but she was a great lady, but you know, she was theatrical and so on. And my elder brother was had trouble reconciling to this young brat me. And so on. But um, so I always felt like that. And then I kind of was gung ho to, I was a scholarship kid, you know, I come from impoverished gentry, you could say, uh, background. My parents were themselves ran away from their backcountry families and, and mm -hmm. hid, hid out in New York. And my father was very involved in French culture and um, worked in various ways in the associated Spanish. He was a linguist, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, in high school, and in a fancy prep school, because I was sort of clever and I could get grades, and so I was at this prep school again, scholarship student. But suddenly, in the senior year, I got in a lot of trouble. I was already admitted to Harvard and so on, but uh, I was an advanced great student because I had so much math achieved in high school. But I left to join Fidel Castro's revolution. Wow. It <laughs> wow! Huh. Like, it was like an earthquake, and uh, in my in my family, everybody was completely freaked out with me. Mm. And um, although my mother was strangely calm, and I'll explain that in a minute. And um, and then, luckily for me, the Cuban recruiters in Miami Beach rejected huh. my recruitment because I was seventeen. You know, I was like such a turkey, really. Wow. 
I had a gun in those days. I flew on an airplane with a gun because they didn't, they were not doing that in those days. Somebody, I didn't, it wasn't mine. Somebody, one of my roommates, friends gave, you know, offered this to me and a Mexican kid who from a very right-wing Mexican family uh. who was trying to be a rebel. So we both were going to go to this poet, you know, and the, and the Sierra Maestri and all that. So anyway, uh, my friend was five foot three and 175 pounds. I was six foot three and 145 pounds. So they laughed at us and they said, oh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza coming to see <laughs> And they left us out of right out of the bar where they were recruiting in Miami Beach. <laughs> we were under surnames and we were doing all this nonsense. And so then we went to Mexico. They we went off to Mexico and then I had a mm. whole story. So I was already just not fitting in mm. to this idea of the great America. Although I loved Jefferson, I loved the idea of all people are equal, etc. But I didn't like the way it was being enacted. It was so unrealistic to me, you know, it's imperialist and and racist and weird, you know, but I didn't have all those words at the time, but I, I just felt about it. I wanted to be a poet and all that. So then, you same similarly, and when I was in, um, I married young, sister, I came back from Mexico, mm. and then I went back to, um, I, I got back into college, although I never got a high school diploma, but I got back in because I had such good grades. The dean of admission said, well, you're obviously never going to settle down, mm. and if we don't admit you, you know, you'll go to waste. <laughs> mm. And uh, doesn't matter anyway. They don't have a diploma because you're you're a sophomore anyway. So what the hell? So they let me in, which they never would. Now it's become so elitist and trapped wow. now. But it already was. But it's gotten even more. So, so then, uh, but then within a year or two, this one really great thing happened. I lost my left eye in a garage accident, self-inflicted wow. nonsense. Wow. And uh, mm. but it was a big shock, like impermanence. And so I'd been on a two track thing before that. I'd been getting my grades and going to school and having a wife. And we had a beautiful daughter, a much a bit older lady. Mm. And then I, uh, I also um, was reading all mystical things, you know, mm. and Buddhism and the Sufism and what have you. And um, but, you know, I, I was split in that way and that I was still conforming, you know, yes. to, but on the other hand, I felt very uncomfortable about it. But when I lost the eye, I had this amazing vision yeah. for over several days. I'd never gotten stoned or anything at that point. But I guess I was stoned for several days from the anesthetic. Mm. Mm. And um, I was in this mirrored place, surface, in which all of these white busts were stacked up like infinitely. You know, like George Washington or Plato or you know, whatever, you know, whatever kind of, you know, Anglo heroes they were. And then there was, but it was all mirrored. So they were reflected infinitely in all directions. And then behind these white things, this powerful orange and green and black and purple and swirling colors, almost like later I recognized them, I think, as Tibetan fierce deities. Wow. You know? And sort of very colorful, highly energized beings, you know, because somehow when I woke up without the eyeball, uh, a few days later, I said to my ex and my mother, I said, bring me my Buddhist books. I'm leaving. I'm going to India. We're forget about this culture. You know, I'm going to find mm. some knowledge about life. Mm. And they were, oh, no, dear. And they thought I was freaking out. And then, and I, I was in a way, but not because of that, but because I realized death happens in a split second. And then what's been the use of the whole thing? So, mm. so then I knew there was a knowledge that didn't exist in America. You know, it didn't exist in any sciences or any religions or anything that was available, at least that I knew about in America. So I, I sensed that India had it, not Tibet actually, but India. Mm. So, so then I tried to break out as having trouble doing that. And I didn't quite manage for a few months. But within six months, somebody brought me some mescaline. And that helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because it sort of blew away those more, all those white bus cobwebs, you know, mm. and made me feel, see, feel joy and see. I also fear about, you know, if you didn't shape up, you know, and mm. uh, 
And anyway, it, 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 it reinforced the determination from the loss of the eye, you know. Mm. And then pretty much I left. I tried to take the wife and daughter with a nurse. Maybe we had a little bit of money, um, which came from whatever. Long story. I, I shouldn't too much detail. But I was. But they refused to go. They were scared. They thought I'd go mm. crazy, blah, blah, blah. So then I eventually ended off going as a, to India wow. to see my guru, so to speak, you know, carrying mm. uh, different important books with me. And um, uh, I got there after it took me one year meeting Sufis, Christian mystics, Hindu swamis, all through the Middle East and Europe and the Middle East, and then India. And then I was then I met the Tibetans, and then somehow that they knew what I wanted. I knew they did. Mm. I I got a job working with them and so forth. But then the very strange thing happened where my father passed away, uh, and he saved me, by the way, because he has had a mystical streak. But when my mother and ex-wife wanted to kind of send me off for shock therapy or something, like actually capture me, he saved me. He said, no, if he wants to go be a mystic, um, do it. That's what you should do. You should wow. your values in life. He did save me, really. And um, But anyway, he passed away. And uh, so I went back for a funeral. Then I met this Mongolian guy. I call him my Mr. Miyage, you know, like in the karate yes. kid. Yes. Very simple guy, but really amazing. In New Jersey, like wow. one and a half hours from New York, <laughs> and they, and then I didn't go back to India for a while, and I studied with him, and he he really he was like a third parent for me, mm. and he really he really brought out probably from my previous life like all kind of weird things like I spoke the language in ten weeks. I was wow. I, I was making beautiful calligraphy when my English writing was always very scrabbly because I didn't like going a a a a a. You know, when I was a little kid and I wrote beautiful Tibetan calligraphy and so on. So it was a real re- return to something, mm-hmm. some deeper layer of my consciousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he took me back to Dalai Lama because I was demanding to be a, uh, a monk. Mm-hmm. He was saying, no, your goal is not to be a monk. If you were going to be a monk, you probably would have been reborn in a Tibetan refugee settlement or something. Uh, but you are reborn in America. You have a mission here. You're not going to be a monk. But I wouldn't listen. And uh, even though he was my great uh-huh. teacher, I said, well, listen, uh-huh. so they finally said, well, I'll take you. Maybe Dalai Lama will make you a monk. So then he took me with him to India, introduced me to Dalai Lama. He wow. said, this, this crazy Western kid who's really smart and already speaks Tibetan and he loves the Dharma, Buddha Dharma, but he wants to be a monk. Mm. And I promised him I would introduce you for that. But I'm telling you, don't make him a monk. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? You brought me <laughs> and, uh, but then, so Dalai Lama took a little while looking me over, and then we became really buddies. Wow! Because uh, he was a little older than me, but he was still studying, and I was studying. And then he would, I would study with his teachers. He would, uh, and he and I would talk about everything because I was, I was fluent in Tibetan early. Mm. So then, then I became ex monk. So then I eventually came back. And the Geshe was right. The old Mongolian. I fell in love with someone. I after I quit, I realized he was right, and then I quit, mm-hmm. and I did mm-hmm. meet and fall in love with a blessed, wonderful person, mm-hmm. Swedish, uh, German girl, mm-hmm. and um, and then um, you know here we are, fifty six years later. Wow! <laughs> so you went, you went and met the Dalai Lama. That was what in the sixties. Which year? Like which year was that that you went? That was sixty two when wow. I met the, the Mongolian. Sixty one, wow. sixty two. The whole year I spent getting to India. Wow. Then sixty. Then I was with him sixty three and sixty four. Then late in sixty four, he took me to his holiness, oh. and then I was with his holiness till late sixty, end of sixty five, and then um, and then I came back. And came back. Then I didn't last that long as a monk. <laughs> No, it's a whole, there's lots of other stories, but I'm trying to write a memoir. I might do it before I croak if I, if I ever. That would be amazing. I'm curious. You mentioned there's so much I want to get into, but you mentioned uh, reincarnation. And so I'm I'm curious, can you like lay out like, what is reincarnation truly? Obviously like living different lives and coming back again, but I'm curious from your understanding, yes. experience, what what is it that reincarnates? You know, because people often say, you know, so uh, dope, they, they often say, like, I was Elvis in the past life. I was Queen Sheba. In the, nobody says I was a dishwasher. Everybody, everybody was everybody was King Tut. Everybody in the past was life. Napoleon and Jane Cleopatra. So, or so what what is it? What is it that incarnates? And let's say, like, right. you know, does my mother incarnate? But yet, 
I can still feel her in the heavenly realm, but yes. she, is she over there or is she in this life incarnated as another maybe being? Maybe both. Maybe both. Can, Who you, knows can, you, exactly. can you break down this concept? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, the great thing about Buddhist science from the beginning of which Buddha was a scientist, really, mm. and that was he was anti-dogmatic. That is to say, there's no absolute theory of anything. Yes. There's a, there is, the, the one absolute theory is that there's no absolute theory. You could call mm. it not the absolute theory. So the absolute theory is a negation. And therefore, it's the openness of reality to be endlessly rediscovered, put it that way. Which is very methodologically that's science, you know, and you know that you you, you experience and experiment trump some dogmatic theory. You mm -hmm. follow, if you follow me, you know. Yes. So, you know, which they did, you know, to get away from the Inquisition, and then they made their own dogma about materialism, and there's no soul and no mind, you know. Whereas Buddha's thing is the science of life, where there is, in addition to the body and what they call the coarse mind, the mind in the brain. There's also the soul mind, which is more in the heart, and which is a deeper, much more subtle thing, you know. And that the continuum of that, although that's not a fixed thing, like cute, and acute is not a barcode that never changes life to life. Bob is not a barcode that never changes life to life. There's a continuum that mm. goes that one thing kindles another, and it's always changing. Mm. And it can go for the way better, and it can go for the way worse. And actually, there's an ultimate better where the person gets able to control the shape of their life exactly, precisely, and that's called enlightenment, mm. Buddhahood. You know, so Buddhahood is not a god, and it's not a, it's not something sort of given somehow by somebody else. It's a, it's something that a, a navigator, a, a, a traveler, a migrant, life after life, a soul migrant, let's call it a soul migrant, life after life. That's actually an Indian expression for death. It's mm. soul migration. They call it because it, but you go life after life and it changes very much, but there's some trend of the previous continuity. It's mm. so amazing. It's like the microverse, the micro universe is so huge in its own way. You know, it's like infinite toward the micro, never reaches zero. You know, it goes like everything is mini for mini and mini for mini and macro for macro like that. So it's amazing view of life. So, so, so rebirth is kind of. If, according to Buddhist science, is mandatory. It's sort of like the, the physicists have this thing called the theory of the conservation of energy. That you know, no energy is ever ultimately destroyed. It just changes form, mm. and um, so th that theory is like Buddha's theory. It's just there's a very subtle plane of energy, which is the soul plane of energy, and. Uh, you will read, if you read basic books on Buddhism in the West, what you will hear is that there's no soul in Buddhism. Yes. That's because the Buddha rejected the idea that there's a fixed template, like a little barcode or a dog tag mm. that's sort of somewhere in some place that is always the same you. That he rejects because we're always changing, you know, and it's just like, you know, cute when you were three years old. And yes. now cute are really every cell in your body, the materialists will say is different. And all your memories and your experiences and what you've learned and your abilities, and they're all very, very different than they were when you were two years old. Yes. And yet, and yet there's a continuum of you. Mm. And, uh, and it goes on until your body doesn't want to carry your continuum anymore because it's annoyed with it. It's, it's not working well. And then what death is in that view is just like a doorway Mm. There's no such thing as a state of death. It's like that's where your mind, your soul, and your body part ways, mm. and uh, and it's that's it. and what what happens when that happens is the soul suddenly connects to everything, but usually that's too much for us for our normal consciousness, so we kind of pass out, mm. and we have experience that we we just we blank out kind of thing like that, and then and then what happens like it's very similar to. The process of dreaming, a deep sleeping and dreaming. When you fall asleep, you're tired at the end of the day, you pass out. Then you will you arise in a dream, and you what you don't realize when you're having the dream normally, although you can train yourself to be lucid in the dream, as they say, which is very important training actually for life and death mm -hmm. knowledge of what life and death is, where you can know that, oh, I'm dreaming, but I'm not going to wake up. I'm going to use the dream. I'm going to voyage. I'm going to travel. I'm going to see grandma. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. 
in the dream, and that's called lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. And we all have that when we wake up in the dream, at that last split second where we do remember the dream, and then we wake, and then we a little bit lose the memory, unless mm. we're working on it. But for that moment before we're completely awake, we are lucidly dreaming. But what happens when we do it is we, because we, we didn't practice that, is that we then wake up, unfortunately, and then we lose the dream state. Right. So that's what the so the, the soul, when you dream, you get a view of your soul. Actually, if you learn to examine what you what you really mm -hmm. feel like in a dream, mm -hmm. and you <clears> have soul experiences, really, <throat> and it's going to be very illuminating, actually. And that, for psychotherapy is based on that, for example, that you you become aware of your dreams more, you tell them to the therapist, and then deeper contents of your experience come out. Mm -hmm. Has helped you imply those, blah blah blah. You, mm. you know, you do depend on that. So, and, and the Buddhists also did from way back. They did it. They didn't wait till Vienna to sniffing a little coke with Sigmund in Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so this continuum. This continuum. Just to, so, so, so. When we die, this personality dissolves, and yes. this this continu the continuum. Continues? Can you yeah. just like break? It, it continues to where, to what, to to. Well, it, when it, it continues, continues to the next to life. life. It's a usually, except in the case of either a really good person or a really evil person, mm -hmm. in which case, bam, it's immediately embodied, top or up or down. You know, they have, uh -huh. they have a whole like thing of heaven and hell. You know, so it immediately goes way up or way down, and um, there's no intervening, much intervening experience. But to ordinary, more ordinary people, sort of in a mixture of things, there's a dreamlike state that is very similar to a dream. There's first a kind of passing out state, like a deep sleep, and then there's a dreamlike state, which they call the bardo, the between. You know, there's that novel that was quite popular recently called Lincoln in the Bardo. Mm -hmm. They've been using the Tibetan word like an English word. But the word just simply means the between. Yes. Between death and rebirth. And uh, in that case, we're actually also in a between, according to them, between birth and death now, because we're already changing and very at our subtle level is changing. Mm -hmm. Now, now what that subtle level is, it's kind of mysterious, but and it's it's hard to explain. But there's two layers of it, you could say. There's one layer where the super subtle most level is completely enlightened. Mm. It's like it's clear light, what they call it. it's like vast. It's a uh, it identifies with the universe. It's one with everything. And mm -hmm. that that we have. We all have that. We but we we experience it as if we pass out. So we don't realize that we have it somehow. We, it, we we are shut off from it because we're scared to sort of release the boundary that we normally right, think we're right, protecting right. ourselves in, you know. Yes. But, but we all have that. Then like on the surface of that, if you if you think of it visually, like a little drop or something, you know, it's sort of surface can have patterns like the like the surface of a drop, you know, you can imagine mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And those patterns come from how we are living in our coarser personality, our, our more normal personality. And that is if we've been very closed as a personality, stingy, selfish, mm -hmm. uptight, freaked out, cruel, and frustrated and so forth, then that creates a kind of pattern of patterns of closure on the mm. surface of the deepest thing, which is one with everything that every being has, every sentient being has, not just every human, every being. Mm. And then, but if on the other hand, we've been very open-hearted, warm-hearted, generous, friendly, loving, and joyful, et cetera, you know, unafraid of things, open to the world and so forth, to some whatever degree, uh, then those patterns also are there. And uh, short of completely open, where we are aware of that deepest nature, which would be an enlightened state, mm. short of that, the more open we are, then the, the less driven are we by the unconscious, you know, by our by selfish impulses, in other words, mm. by, by fear, by thinking, oh, nature is going <clears> to <throat> me up, or the tiger is going to get me, or neighbor is going to get me, or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more uh, the more human we are, you know, and um, so, so which is and the human already from Buddha's uh, biological point of view, the human is a high achievement of a degree of openness. The human being human. Yeah, that's why it's why we have better sex. <laughs> <laughs> it's why we have more 
you know, softer skin, you know, mm. it's, we're more able to identify with another, like empathize, you know, when we fall in love, etc. Or mom with the baby, you know, the mammal and the mammal who has the baby in her body, you know. So that's very advanced, you know. The 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 uh, reptile has the hard scales, you know, and then drops mm -hmm. an egg over there and then takes off, you know, etc. You know, so there's less of a a sense of connectedness to the others, you know what I mean? The human, and therefore we got to be human from when we were those other animals, which we've all been, according to them, mm. way ahead of Darwin, you know? You know, the people who freak out about Darwin, they don't want to, they, yes. certain people, they don't want to think they were ever a monkey, you know? Mm. But, 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 or that they're connected to them, even genetically. Whereas the Buddhist one, it's not just the genes. We personally were monkeys, everybody, you know? Wrong. And tigers and lions and the, crocodiles. The, the continuum... Of, of our consciousness was that once and, yeah, and we and evolved. There's no, and there's no first beginning. It's infinite. We've always been there. And we always will be there. You know, life is, we're really, life is infinite. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of learning to negotiate it in such a way where it's, it really fits with its natural loving condition. And there's also really, you could call it, I call it an infinitheistic, infinitheistic dimension. I know it's a funny word to say, infinitheistic. Dalai Lama doesn't like it. <laughs> he says we're non-theistic. I say, no, you're not non-theistic, your holiness, because you live in Lhasa, which means the place oh. of the gods. Mm. I said, so you believe there are gods, and so did Buddha. He talked to them. Mm. But there's just no one to blame everything on. Non-monotheistic, you could sort of say. And you could, but in a way, it isn't really polytheistic in the sense that none of them create the whole thing. They are just the highest. They're like way beyond the the dictators, the presidents, the whatever, yes. the kings. So they are they are very powerful, but they didn't create everything according to Buddhist science because no one being can be blamed. Mm. And, and actually, the reality, the deepest reality, is pure energy, love. Pure but, energy. How do we? How do we? cause oh, so many questions. How do, does this continuum? How do we? I guess two questions. One, how, how how do we know when or choose to incarnate, and why why do we incarnate into this? Right, right. Well, we incarnate because there's uh, energy is infinitely conserved, and uh, what the difference of Buddhist psychology, which is really the premier, the Indian psychologies in general were premier on the planet and still are, actually, in spite of Freud and. It's all good what they're doing now, but still they've gone into their materialist neuroscience thing, you know, like you think they're going to catch the brain somehow, catch the wild brain, hmm. hunting the brain, you know, but that's just silly actually in a way, because that's missing the soul, you know. But anyway, the, the ancient psychology was different because we do have an unconscious level in our being, a kind of gut level. Even though we're mammals and we're we're altruistic, we have this potential altruism and lovingness and sensitivity and openness. But we also have a kind of deep sense of like worry about worry, you know, and, and fear, and that's the unconscious. Right. And Freud rightly said that everyone has like a Thanatos, you know, destroyed, mm. just you know, aggression yes. and uh, and eroticism, everybody and lust, you know, everybody has those primal kind of mm -hmm. things. But the point is, those are just energies. And, and then in that psychology, the human being has the ability, if they are properly instructed and if they use their mind life to learn more about themselves, to discover those things and to not be driven around by the unconscious. That is to say, the unconscious is not like a mechanistic, automatic thing. Everybody's going to be driven by the unconscious. There's nothing they can do about it. They didn't agree with that. And they, that's why they develop yoga, they develop all these meditative things in India. India was the greatest advance in that. And they and they use that, the mind itself. We're so intelligent, human beings, all of them. It's not just because somebody went to this school or that. We're all super intelligent. And we, we can go in and we can discover all these energies and we can avoid being driven by them into something we wouldn't necessarily like. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. So, for example, if you are a... If you are a, a military guy and you flew B-52s and dropped endless bombs on villagers mm. for like decades and got to where you identified with your airplane, you might gravitate in that dream state toward being reborn as a dragonfly. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> You'd oh. think that was a smart thing to be. 
because mm. he would somehow be able to soar free. He wouldn't really by analytically realize you had the terribly short mm. life. You live on a riverbank and mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, or if you're if you're a tank diver, and then you might like a beetle form, you know, you know, like animal forms. You know, we have them in our cars and our planes and. Warriors put them on their helmets, you know, like samurai. And uh, that's in a way because of the violence and intensifying the boundary between self and other to training yourself to kill, which mm. humans are not actually that good at, really. Mm. We, we, we have to be trained to not be sensitive because we live at the mother's breast for years and then we're helpless until maybe 40. I don't know. And uh, so we're we're not so then you have to really get you know like blood you know like the whole story of bringing the chicken's neck and like mm -hmm. you know otherwise the kid doesn't want to kill the chicken you know so so anyway point is the more we go into that we discover in ourselves what those deepest energies are and we end up where we can become fully enlightenment means fully conscious of all the energies that we swim in and how we connect to them, and therefore able to navigate them for our own benefit and the benefit of others mm. most effectively. That's what mm. enlightenment is defined as. Mm. And therefore, be like, a, be like a mother to all life. Do you know what I mean? Be, that's, that's the ideal. Be like a, and it's like in Christianity, you know, there's famous mystical thing, Thomas Akempis, called Imitatio Christi, mm. where, and, and, and the great Emerson, he was kicked out of Harvard Divinity School because he said, we shouldn't just wait for Christ to save us. We should be Christ to the right, world. Right, right, right. And they threw him out because, they, you know, that they think that they, they, they are into authoritarian mm. thing. God wants to punish you, et cetera, et cetera. I think actually those kind of people, they, they're scared because they're actually scared of God. And they don't like him. <laughs> it's an automatic thing. I, I've lately come to this really strongly. It's an automatic thing. It's why religious fanaticism is so dangerous, because it's an automatic thing that if you really get really convinced that there's one omnipotent guy mm. or could be a gal in the world, in the universe, and then you have some shit happen to you, then who did it? He did. Mm. Are you going to like that guy? No way. Mm. And then you're going, but but if you're stuck in an authority pattern where you have to behave the king or the dictator because God told you you should, and then the high priest says you should, and so forth until you're going to cripple your own feeling of freedom and just be authoritarian. And if you do like that, but you're going to, you're going to dislike the people on top of you, including the God. Yes, you're going to you're going to feel insecure in your faith, actually. Mm, you're mm. Gonna shove it on other people and kill them if they don't agree with you. Mm, because mm. when they don't agree with you, it stirs your own disagreement. Mm. In your mind. That's why fanatics, you know, they do these uh, the crusades and shit and kill people. You know, yes. Normally yes. they wouldn't. Kill. So so I think that we should listen to God in the monotheistic tradition should listen to whichever God, whatever they're calling God which is that loving energy in themselves, okay, agreed, but they should they should listen to him when he says, oh, I help people help themselves. Mm. I want people to behave like nice people. I want people to do, turn the other cheek. I don't want people to kill other people, et cetera, et cetera. In mm. other words, they should realize that the omnipotent one is not omnipotent and that they have some control over their own situation mm. and therefore they have responsibility. Can you, can you, can, can, can you? can be nice because it, it can help people feel that love is stronger than all this hatred and crap, you know, this demonic. Can you, can, can you go deeper into that? Because I was going to ask, like, okay, we we incarnate, like, how much control do we have over our lives? If 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 we're a continuum of certain energies, and and now we incarnate, like, is it just someone's destiny to, you know, be a billionaire, you know, like Elon Musk, or win an Oscar? You know, Will Smith. The problem with those things is that those victories, although they give a kind of ecstasy, mm. they immediately are followed by having to defend the victory and worrying about the next one, you know, yes. and something else to feel frightened about. Oh. And they're not lasting. But and we and our and the way we're indoctrinated in our culture, which I think was why I was so uncomfortable in the conventional you know, uh, ex ex education that I received 
we're indoctrinated that we are quite helpless, actually. The mm. Americans have this. Did you ever read Lame Deer Speaks? No, I'm going to. It's a wonderful thing by a Lakota guy who was a kind of cowboy and a warrior and a whatever. And then he he gave this uh, he dictated this thing to somebody, a book called Lame Deer Speaks. And what was really telling is he says in the Indian Wars, you know, when the when the Civil War army was sent out to kill all the Indians so they could have more real estate to make money. Uh, they uh, the Indians actually felt sympathetic to the pony soldiers. Because the Indian, when they would go to battle, they would be prepared to die and they would be wanting to go with their ancestors. So they would paint themselves and put their mojos and their girlfriend's thing or their wife's thing or their little kid's thing on their horse and put stripes and the whole thing. So they would go as individuals to the next situation, you know. Then they saw these guys like little Swiss soldiers, like been wound up in Switzerland. All wearing blue uniform and tick tock tick tock tick, and no individuality at all. Meanwhile, the Americans are we're the rugged individuals. Mm. We're rugged and we're individualists, you know. And then meanwhile, they're gonna go and vote for an asshole like Trump. <laughs> they're individual. Come yeah. on. You know, we're very conformist and very authoritarian, and we're because we're taught that we're helpless. Mm. You know, when, when, where I first taught Amherst College, which likes to think of itself as elite, and they tell you that. I never heard that, actually, or ever I studied. They tell you all the time, oh, we're all the elite. You know, it's so ridiculous. And they, they have a course for freshmen, Darwin, Marx, and Freud. And if you don't take that course and do well, you've had it. You're not a modern person. You're not a graduate. Mm. Well, Darwin tells you you're just a victim of wherever you are born in society and whatever you think is not yours, it's just whatever your social position is. That's it. You have no free thought, you have no free will. Freud tells you your unconscious is pushing you around and you can't even make a decision about anything. <laughs> just, you're just impulses you can't control, right? And who's the other one? Oh, yeah, and, and, uh, and Marx? Uh, uh, no, yeah, Darwin tells you your genes are making you do it. Yes. And Mark tells you your social situation. I'm sorry, I mixed it. Social situation. So between the three of them, you are completely helpless. Mm. Rah, rah, let's win the football game. Mm. You know what I'm mm. And you can't say no. Mm. You can't take the knee. You can't rebel. You can't be yourself. Mm. You just have to follow this, uh, this uh, thing, which, is, which has one tiny thread of let's all be equal, but it's a lot of other corruption and genocide and God knows what. You know? mm. So the point is, the Indian thing is, the, it's, I know, don't worry. It's not you're behind your ability. You're going to figure it out. My watch is always... Gets, <laughs> the point is that in India, you know, even the sadhus, I'm not saying everybody in India is enlightened or everybody in Tibet. No way. Uh-huh. But they're all working on it. And they all have some degree of, of, of cultural support that you have a soul that connects to the light, that connects to life, that connects to love, that connects to, and that love and goodness is more powerful than these jerks mm. and all this nasty mm. stuff. Mm. And that in a way, therefore, there's no death. It's just a change of embodiment. Mm. And that you, if, you, if you understand the secret of joy in life, which is being open and loving and friendly and connecting happily with other beings and seeing their happiness happen, then you're going to find always a good position in Mm. in this endless and infinite evolution. And even since it's infinite, there's a completely inconceivable possibility of becoming a fully enlightened being that's fully aware at all times of Mm. the light. So, like like a Jesus, like a Buddha. Yes. Like, yes. Like so is it so 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 like there's two questions, but let me ask the first one. So someone listening who might be going through like they're like, Robert, Professor, I'm I'm, I'm suffering, man. I'm, my, my life is shit. You know, I, I keep going through the same BS in my relationship. I'm struggling financially. I'm working so hard. I, it, maybe it's just my karma from past lives that. I'm just meant to be, my life is just meant to suck and it's just my life. And I just have to accept that this is just the way my life is going to be. It's going to be shit. It, right. So it, is, 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 it, is it possible that that's just someone's life versus someone is 
just meant to be a Justin Bieber and it's just that's just their life from past oh, life that's merits. A, that's a terrible, that's the terrible power of delusion, <laughs> of delusion yes. and depression, which leads uh -huh. to huge suicidal depression, which right. doesn't help. You know, the, you know, the guy has the trigger and grits his teeth and goes, bam. You know, mm. and then the guy's in a dream world with one super freaking headache. In the dream. And they will, oh no, you know. Of course, the Catholics will say they're in hell for life, but they, that's, and they're being nice trying to say that because they want to scare people not to do that because they are somewhere of some connection to the Christ, to the idea that life is goodness. So they don't want someone to throw that human way of trying to be able to understand it or in the, their case, just believe in it. Um, uh, they don't want to. They don't want to have people throw that away. But but in another way, that's not technically accurate. There's no such thing as an eternal bad situation or an eternal good situation, except unless you are fully aware of what the final situation is, which is goodness. Mm. And you can do that. And the human form, the human intelligence, is the best vehicle within which to do that. It's highly precious in that sense. Although it's not like dogs and cats and even bacteria don't have souls. Every living creature has a soul, has, has that soul. same soul, every single one. And the gods have them too. And um, according to at least the Buddha's discoveries and uh, or different, and there are lots of Buddhas. There isn't just the one guy. Mm. And so, and no one of them is absolute form of any kind, you know? So, so when that person gets there, the key then would be, the lucky thing for them would be someone to try to help them mm for them and they can sense right away if that someone does care for them yes they can sense that everyone can everyone knows everything about everyone else in a way although they don't pay attention to their intuition you could say you know and the women are better than we are guys are more oh. shut down you know we yeah. are we are more shut down because we're supposed to be tough and uh, you know but but naturally speaking they are more so which one of us would have Sort of a, 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 a no rent paying rental occupant squatter in our belly for ten months. <laughs> Which guy no, is not me? Not me? Not no me? Way. <laughs> no way. So anyway, we know that. So someone would tell this person, "Well, wait a minute. Every night when you fall asleep, and even if you're an insomniac, you do eventually fall asleep, and you feel that ex extinction of your consciousness like a relief." Yes. If you're ready to fall asleep, you know, so all those downers that people get addicted to, that's because they knock out their consciousness because they don't, they're tired of the burden of it. Mm -hmm. And and they get used, they get addicted to that. And we're all addicted to sleep for that matter. However, what you never really think about when you get into this cycle going down the drain of how it's all so awful. Yes. When you do wake up in the morning after a reasonable sleep, you're a little more into taking care of business. Mm -hmm. You suddenly have a new energy from somewhere. Mm -hmm. You thought you just annihilated your consciousness, but actually you didn't. You were someplace, you went into a dark space. Maybe you associated in your mind with nothingness, like you're just going to stop existing. And you think that's a real thing. Nothing is something, you think. But actually, there is, nothing is nothing. That's the great thing about nothing. Mm -hmm. It's not there. Mm -hmm. So wherever you were, when you were completely helpless and unconscious, Something gave you good energy. Mm. And you feel more energetic now for a while. Maybe you can feel that you can complain more forcefully, but whatever it is, you're you're more with it. So you by infer you by you you should learn to infer that there must be some energy out there that is likes you, that wants to fill up your cells with new life and give you new your brain wants to do something new. And uh you started counting in blessings, in other words. Mm. And you do it with simple, simple little things. But you you hear it from someone who themselves has had some some direction of not necessarily perfect Buddha or Jesus, the living yes. Jesus, but someone who's had some development in that direction of discovering mm. at the deepest nature in the soul where there is light. Everybody has it. And that's why the Dalai Lama, for example, as I said, although I said Buddhists don't agree that one being can be blamed for the whole thing or credited with it, but although there are very powerful ones that one can give credit to for whatever they do do, 
but he doesn't diss the monotheistic religions, the world religions. He loves them. He likes them. He says that's mm. good, but but there should, please don't interpret it in such a way as to end up <clears throat> hating God like Elie Wiesel did. Yes. Elie Wiesel, you know, you know, who wrote Night, who was in the Holocaust, remember a Jewish guy? Mm -hmm. He hated mm -hmm. God for 40, 50 years, although he was brought up very faithfully as a young boy, mm -hmm. because he was in Auschwitz, you know, and survived it. And he only for, he forgave God in a New York Times op-ed huh. before getting mad with Bernie Madoff. <laughs> anyway, he was a great guy. Wow. <laughs> I liked him. Mm. But he was not happy being angry with God, mm. or, you know, for what he was, he was unhappy during all that time. And in a way, he channeled it positively by getting other people to sort of think about not behaving like the Nazis did, you know. Mm. Mm. You mentioned the word enlightenment a few times. Yeah. And so I would like you to, it's going to be a funny question, but like, how do we get enlightened? What, <laughs> how do we get enlightened? Okay. What, 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 like, where do we start? You find it, and, and what are the steps? You find it in yourself. Okay. First thing, you use your intelligence, which is huge, and don't let them tell you it isn't. Mm. Intelligence is huge. <clears throat> Human intelligence is incredible, and you you question all sorts of theories to tell you you're not enlightened. You're helpless, you can't control yourself, you just have to rely on this or that expert, or this or that authority, etc., etc. You question all of that. Mm. Don't accept those things. And you that's the first step is what they say call developing an open-mindedness, an open-minded view. So you're ready to learn things and you, you, you don't question your ability to learn things. Mm. Okay, that's one. Then second step, you then sort of start observing things more carefully. And if you have the possibility, even if it's only 20 minutes, uh, 10 minutes a day, you observe yourself internally and you do you develop some kind of yoga. And I don't mean a physical posture yoga necessarily. I mean, although that's very good for the physical health, but you, you know, any good athlete, you know, LeBron, you know, they yeah. also know that. You know, to develop not don't, don't get arthritic joints and so forth, and flexibility and et cetera, mm -hmm. and resilience, you know, and strength, not just strength, too locked up to strength, and they're gonna hurt themselves. So, but but I'm not I'll pushing that, I'm saying mental one, where you observe your way your mind works. Mm -hmm. You start listening to yourself. You don't think if you have an impulse that says, I hate that, I want to go over there. Well, then you have to find another voice in yourself and say, Well, why? Well, how bad is it? In other words, you start getting more, a little more leverage over your inner impulses by observing them mm -hmm. and noticing they're relational. <clears throat> they, they, they don't come from an absolute source that's dominating you, and et cetera. And so you begin that. And, and, and when you, and in the correcting of the view, the initial elaborating of the view, mm. and getting open minded, you decide that maybe you're not helpless. And maybe you can become aware of what your, where your impulses come from and how they shape, how to shape them and how to restrain them when mm. you know by experience they're going to get you into trouble, like when you get really angry and start to yes. or whatever, or you know get get lustful and, and hurt people various mm. ways. So mm. so the thing is, the main thing in the view is you begin to entertain the possibility that you have enlightenment in yourself already already human mm. being you already are close to being aware of the reality of your relationships the reality of yourself the reality of the way life works and that many people have come to beg to improve their understanding of that and you also can then you start looking it's not looking for enlightenment like it's going to be over in in mm. india and like i did what people naturally do mm. but you learn to look more into yourself mm. the, and encourage that aspect of being open to your own nature and mm -hmm. that you can come to understand yourself. And then you, and then you, as you learn, you learn, for example, that when you're kind to another person, you're helping yourself. Yes. And you're happier and all kinds of things like that, rather than, oh, 
I'm so selfish, I couldn't possibly do that. Or if I did that, they would be mean to me. It would be terrible. Mm. In other words, you can begin to observe the way life works. And you, you know, and actually I can tell myself, I can begin to learn to listen to my wife. <laughs> uh, 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 yes. thinking I know better all the time, you know, Professor mm. Bob. You know, mm. I can listen to the children and the and the and the women, you know, mm. and the, the people who who are more close to the reality of things, you know. Anyway, mm. so those are approximately what we do, I think, cute. That's what you're doing with Soul Talk, I think. Yes. It's wonderful what you do. Yes. The other key thing about Indian society touched by this kind of quest of enlightenment idea is in a in a more of a way than some other one other societies um is that education becomes the core purpose of life education you don't get educated to go get a job and make money although that could help but you you like education becomes the human purpose mm. in the sense of opening your mind more and more because there's no limit to how <clears throat> become aware and mm. really joyfully so and blissfully so mm -hmm. you know that yourself everybody knows that if, if they ever had a moment of real bliss when they were like super in love even before whether they knew it was fighted you know or super achieved or that moment of winning the oscar or whatever it is if they've ever had that they knew that in that moment they felt quite able to do whatever it was Mm. And mind started saying, well, how able am I? And like, what can mm. I do now? Who's going to come and take this Oscar away from me? And whatever. Mm. You know what I mean? In other words, there's a there's a way that we can be. We all have the ask the we all have the aptitude, human aptitude to, as I as they say, give it up. <laughs> you and are... we feel powerful in that, you know, mm. that we feel really fun. We identify with the actor or the singer or the person and then go with the beauty and fall mm. in love with it and give it up, you know, and that, and those, and, and, and therefore we know that we can empathize with other beings. We know that we can really feel capable and right, you know, and we, that therefore we can cultivate that and work in that direction. We can find that mm. ability in ourselves, you know, mm. give ourselves the Oscar, you know? Yeah. Powerful. Wow. This has been an amazing conversation. Uh, just, just out of respect for your time, I'm going to ask a final question um, as we begin wrapping up here. Um, if you reflect on just everything that you've lived in your life, the ups, the downs, the successes, the failures, relationships, I would love to hear what you feel are the three most important life lessons that you've learned that if you could only like pass the these these wisdoms to the next generation, your kids, their your grandchildren, that like yeah. here are the three things that would evolve the consciousness of the next generation the most that you've yeah. learned. What would you what what life lessons would you give them? Well, the most important thing, and what I finally wrote in my latest book called Wisdom is Bliss. Mm. Four friendly fun facts that can change your life. And uh, in that most important thing is that life is good. Life is good. The good is more powerful. And I do think that's Jesus' main teaching, that's Buddha's main teaching, that's Muhammad's main teaching. That's what they that's where their whole the whole power of their movements came from, comes from mm -hmm. still. Uh, is that that it's that goodness is more powerful. And therefore, when they have the good impulse, that's the one that will be more powerful. And 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 from the beginning, they should go against what they're indoctrinated to think that they have to be scared of the bad guys. Right. And that they have to have one <clears throat> bigger bad guy on their side mm -hmm. against all the other many bad guys. Mm -hmm. And you know, this kind of like all how it works. And I think it comes even in Christianity from the Roman Empire co opting of mm -hmm. Jesus' teaching. I, I personally, but, but that's a whole long thing. I don't have time to really explain that yes. right now. But, but uh, it's not the Roman church that find they're doing their best, but it's the Roman emperor, Constantine and others, mm. when they were using it as a glue to hold emperor to empire together, and they wanted people really to sort of render unto Caesar and be still controlled by fear of Caesar more than encouragement by Jesus. And right. then carried the deeper side of Jesus' teaching of like, it's like what Ray Charles sings. Mm. It's all right. It's all right. Uh -huh. It is all right. 
Life is good. That's the strongest thing that people need. And every generation needs that. Because, because in a way, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. So that the good is stronger. Then they, when they have the good impulses, they will, they will push them and they won't be afraid to do it, you know. And, uh, and that's the key. That is the key. That's the key. So life is good is the number two. The number good two. is stronger. That's number one. And number two is, and therefore, the good is at the core of my being. And yes, I can have sin, and yes, I can have ignorance, and yes, I can go wrong. And so I have to work on developing myself mm. and critiquing my bad stuff. But the root of it is goodness is there. I, mm. I My soul, soul talk, I soul connects to the light. Yes. That's number two. And number three is listen to the women. Listen to the women. Listen to the women. Listen the to the women. The daughters, the mothers, the grandmothers the wives, the beloveds, whoever they are, generally listen to them. They're generally more grounded. <laughs> and, and don't get all into the whole guy thing, like macho. Yes, yes, yes. That's Beautiful. really destructive. And, uh, and the world peace that we need and the world uh, uh, gentleness with nature that we need, vitally, or it's all over. Uh, is found through the channel of the wisdom of women. Mm. The third thing. So mm. goodness is, mo is the dominant power of the universe. Mm. I have it in myself, each person being encouraged to, to discover that or think that or work toward that, but feel that it's there ahead of time. So they're working mm. toward it, not just that they have to create it out of nothing. And then, and then listen to the women. Mm. And uh, actually, one more thing. Please go for it. Which is really simple, but it's maybe a slogan I'm not coming up with lately. I gave a talk in New Delhi recently before I got sick, but I gave this one talk. I said, Newsflash, nothing is nothing. So therefore, you're never going there. <laughs> and therefore, we have compelled to strive to take care of everything and oh. everyone. Because there's no escape from the consequences of doing any harm or doing whatever it is, because nothing is nothing. You know, the, the, the materialists fake promise to people that they're going to be anesthetized just by dying is fake because there's no evidence. It's unscientific. Whoever proved the existence of nothing? No one. Mm -hmm. No one discovered nothing. There's mm -hmm. no such thing. It's the one thing no one will ever discover. Luckily, because mm. it isn't there. So no one's ever going there. So mm. I put that as a fourth thing. Mm. Because that puts you into connectedness. Yes, yes, yes. And then that it's good, that I have the good, and that that I'm going to listen to the ladies. Yes. Three things work automatically out of that. Beautiful, okay? beautiful. You honor me by listening to the old man. Uh, you know, Robert Furman. This has been a, a real blessing. You know, you, you're someone who, uh, it, it's folks like yourself that for decades now, through your seeking, through your meditations, through your work, through your creativity, you are one of the, to me, pioneers. And I want everyone to hear it. You are one of the pioneers that have sort of carved the trails in, in, in the jungles of human consciousness for, for folks such as myself to be doing what I'm doing. So... I pay thank you so you. much love and respect thank and, and blessing. I attribute that to the Indians and the Tibetans and thank everybody. You. Where can people find find you and, and your and your work and Tibet House? What's, what's the best website? We're going to put all of that oh, in the show notes. BobTurman.com is there. At BobTurman.com and, and or at, at thus.org. T-H-U-S.org. Those two Great. websites. Great, folks. We're going to put all of... Uh, Robert Thurman's links in the show notes. Please check out his books, check out his work, and uh, send me an email, kublaxon at kublaxon.com. I'd love to hear your key takeaways from today's amazing episode. Until next week, love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, 
Instagram or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.